0: turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Wednesday night is a really exciting night for us as a church. On Wednesday nights we go through the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter from Genesis to Revelation And Lord willing, this Wednesday night, we are going to finish the book of Revelation, have gone all the way through uh, from Genesis to Revelation. So if you don't normally come on Wednesday night and you want to come out at 6.30 uh, to celebrate with us, we would love to have you here. And then we will start over on uh, Genesis chapter 1 and start going through uh, the Bible again. I have no idea how old I'll be when we finish uh, the second time. So... Let's pray together and then we'll get into Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness, that your mercies are new every morning, that you're unchanging for eternal life that you have given to us. And God, as we look again at this truth of being satisfied in your goodness, we ask that you would open up our hearts to truly be able to rejoice in you, to delight in you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, how did you do this week in enjoying the goodness of God? Enjoying in what he has provided and who his character is? Did you find yourself, when you were drinking your coffee, thanking the Lord that he has provided that for you? When you were having your favorite meal or maybe even some food that you don't like. Say, God, thank you so much for providing this food and giving me the ability to be able to enjoy it. Have you found yourself celebrating the gospel, celebrating the goodness of God, that you're loved by God, that Christ died for you and uh, rose again? I don't know about you, but this can tend to be a difficult thing to be satisfied in the goodness of God. It seems like it wouldn't be difficult but I can really relate to the working and toiling in Ecclesiastes, I'm kind of a worker by, by nature. My dad's a engineer and he raised us with a great work ethic and so a lot of ways for me, a good day is a lot of work. You, know, you look back on that day and go, that was, that was a, a good day. But I can go through my days pretty easily really being pretty grumpy internally and not really celebrating the goodness of God. So I look at my life, and this is an area of challenge and an area of growth. So what we're gonna do is go back and look at the last paragraph in chapter five that leads into chapter six. So look at verse 18 of chapter five. Here's what I've seen. It's good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all of his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him, for it is his heritage. It's his reserved blessing from God. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is a gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life. He's not overthinking his life, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart really receiving the provision from God, rejoicing in what he has given to us. This leads into chapter six, verse one. There is an evil which I've seen under the sun and it's common among men. So Solomon is going to expose something that he sees to be evil, but also he sees to be common. He continues to use this phrase under the sun. He's trying to examine things from an earthly perspective. He uses it 35 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, not really looking at things from an eternal perspective to the very end of the book. We have to keep the end of the book in mind as we're studying Ecclesiastes. The conclusion of the whole matter is to fear God and to keep his commands. Also, Solomon uses the phrase vanity, vanity of vanities, 25 times in the book of Ecclesiastes when we're simply trying to find value from an under the sun perspective, it leads to vanity. Grasping for the wind is used seven times. So he continues this theme of examining under the sun. So here's the evil, verse two. A man to whom God has given riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing for himself of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. So the end of chapter five was someone who has the material blessings from God, but also has the physical health to be able to enjoy it. God is glorified as we receive his blessings, but as we get into this verse, this particular individual has all of the wealth to where all of his desires are met, but doesn't have the health to be able to enjoy it. And from Solomon's perspective, just looking at this life without looking at eternity, he says this is a great evil to a point where now a foreigner is able to come in and consume and enjoy all of these things that he has worked so hard for. Isn't this Job's experience? The book of Job, Job was a very wealthy man, had so many possessions, but trial finds his life. Satan attacks his life. All of his children die in one day. How much do you think he was enjoying those physical provisions when all of his children died? had passed away. Lost most of his possessions in that same day as well. Continue to read in Job, he loses his health. He almost loses everything. All he has is his wife and his friends. His wife's frustrated and says, Job, just give up on your character. Curse God and die, right? His friends begin to rebuke him unjustly. And Job doesn't have the power to be able to enjoy all of these blessings that were in his life. I believe the lesson for us in verse 2 is to not take our health for granted. To not take our health for granted. One of the biggest gifts that God gives to us is health to be able to enjoy his blessings. And what if you have all these blessings, but you're not able to enjoy it? What if there's a car in the garage, but you can't drive it? You don't have the health to be able to drive it, to go to a restaurant, to enjoy family and friends. Our health may not be what we would desire it to be, you know. It may not be as good as we would want it to be, but yet there's probably some health in our lives that we can truly be thankful for. But I know for some this morning that you, like Job, are in a place where you say, God has taken my health from me. He's allowed this physical difficulty in my life. This is going to happen this side of heaven, isn't it? These tents were designed to wear out. These tents are going to get sick and be exposed to all of the different illnesses of this life. And from an eternal perspective, not from an under-the-sun perspective, not all pain is bad. The Apostle Paul, he was in a place where he had physical calamity in his body. He described it as a thorn in the flesh and he asked God to take it away. And three times, God says what? God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. He says, Paul, I'm gonna pour out grace in this physical difficulty that you're going in. My strength is made perfect in weakness. God's strength comes into our lives when we're weak Because when we're strong, we oftentimes don't rely upon God's strength. Amen? We agreed on that? And then Paul makes this fascinating declaration. And this is what he says. Therefore, I will boast in my infirmities. He's saying, I am glad that God has allowed this thorn in the flesh. It's protected me from pride. It's allowed me to experience God's grace and God's strength. So if you have health, be thankful for it. But also, if you have pain and have the lack of health, be thankful for it. God's using that in our lives as well. The pain causing us to rely upon God's strength. The pain causing us to press into Christ. It's hard to understand and relate to the sufferings of Christ upon the cross without pain in our lives. And even physical pain makes us think about Christ. And Christ, you went through so much more upon the cross. Verse three, and if a man begets a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. When you first read this, you almost think it's hyperbole or an analogy that someone could have a hundred children. But Solomon, remember, had 700 wives and 300 concubines. A hundred children would be very doable for Solomon. Now, I love kids. I love my four kids. I could probably have a couple more kids, right? But not a hundred (laughs) kids. And so this man's got a hundred kids, but you have to understand in this culture, to have a hundred kids was an amazing blessing, That's what people desired. For Solomon's legacy to pass on, he thought he needed all of of these children. So this man's got a hundred kids and lives for many years. But what what does the scripture say? His soul is not satisfied with goodness. Goodness is all around him. He's not like the person in verse 2 that doesn't have his health has all these amazing blessings from God, but something's wrong in here. Something's wrong in the heart to where he's not satisfied with the goodness that God has uh, provided. We see this in our own lives and we observe this in the lives of others where it's like, wow, you are so blessed, but you're not enjoying any of the blessings that God has, has given to you. Oh man, I'm so blessed. I'm so loved by God and God's been gracious to me and he's provided for me, but I'm not enjoying the the goodness of God. What is it in your heart, in my heart, in our hearts this morning that would cause us to not be satisfied with God's goodness? To not be satisfied with, with who he is and what he has provided? Is there anything that you can pinpoint in your life and Maybe it's selfishness. Maybe it's covetousness. Maybe it's, it's greed. Maybe it's this simplicity of the lack of gratitude, the lack of saying thank you to the Lord for what he has provided. But I think we would all agree we don't want to be in verse three. That's not who we want our souls to be. We want our souls to delight in the Lord and to be satisfied in the Lord. I think the key to this is Jesus. The key is Looking to Jesus, fellowshipping with Jesus in his presence is the fullness of joy. If we put experiences or possessions above a relationship with Jesus, our heart's not going to be satisfied with goodness. But when our eyes are fixed upon Christ, where we're loving him, drawing near to him, then he's the one that causes us to be satisfied with goodness. In verse 4, For it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness, though it has not seen the sun or known anything. This has more rest than that man. So, speaking of the stillborn child, that the stillborn child has never seen the sun, never had the opportunity to live outside of the womb, but the stillborn child has experienced more rest than this man who had all of this goodness around him, but he couldn't experience it, and he couldn't enjoy it. That's quite an analogy, isn't it? He's not experiencing any rest. He's not experiencing any enjoyment. And Solomon's conclusion is, it would be better to be a stillborn. It'd be better to never experience life outside of the womb than to not be able to enjoy goodness and not be able to enjoy rest. How are we doing with rest? oh, don't bring up rest, right? How's your soul doing with rest? Is your soul experiencing rest? Jesus said, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I qualify. I, I fit that. Are you weary and heavy laden? Jesus then says, come to me, and I will give you rest, where? To your souls. There's a rest that Jesus can give that nothing else can can provide. As we come to him, as we desire his rest and we desire his peace. In verse 6, even if he lives a thousand years twice, so he gets 2,000 years, but has not seen goodness, do not all go to one place. Time is not going to necessarily cause us to be more satisfied with God's goodness. If you need proof for this, just spend some time in a nursing home. Apart from Christ, we get more grumpy, more grouchy, more cynical, more fed up with life, less satisfied with goodness. Have you observed that right? And so more time is not going to result in us being a place that's more satisfied. Warren Worsby put it this way. What good is it for me to add years to my life if I don't add life to my years? I like that. So what good is it if I live to be 2,000 years old, but if my quality of life is not one of glorifying the Lord? This question that Solomon asks do not all go to one place? Solomon's examining eternity. Do we all just end up being dust of the earth? Is there eternal life? Is there heaven or hell? And we'll come back to that in just a moment in our study. Verse 7, all labor of man is for his mouth, And yet the soul is not satisfied. Why are we working? Because we need to eat, right? Our kids need to eat. So we're laboring so that our mouth can be filled, but our appetite is not satisfied. Church, we're coming up on Thanksgiving. It's within sight. It's my favorite holiday. Because it involves food, being thankful to God and family, and not all of the hassle that comes with Christmas uh, so many times. I'm planning on having a Thanksgiving feast and I'll probably have three plates with everything on it, right? Just, especially teaching through Ecclesiastes, I'm just gonna enjoy it for the glory of the Lord, right? (laughs) To the point where I'm done, I'll not wanna eat turkey again for a year. I mean, I've I've overdone it on, on the turkey. That's what I'll be feeling. But inevitably by 10 at night, where will you find me? Opening the door of the refrigerator, getting out all the turkey leftovers. And if you're going to have the turkey, you need all the leftovers. And going for it once again, because the appetite is never satisfied. Our soul is is never satisfied, even though we're laboring and we're experiencing this food. Notice the end of verse 7, it says, and yet the soul is not satisfied. So even though we're taking in food, our soul remains empty, so as we're experiencing the provision of God, to have a soul that's satisfied, just like our body is eating, our soul needs to be tasting and seeing that God is good. It's important for us to slow down when we're eating a meal to thank the Lord. When you feed a dog, a dog doesn't stop and say thank you. A dog, I'm just going to eat this right now, right? we want to be different than the animal kingdom and to be able to say, Lord, my body needs this food, but even more than this, my soul cries out for you. And I'm thankful for the food that you have provided. I'm, I'm thankful for the friends and the family that you've put into my life. In verse 8, For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? Solomon says, does the wise person have more than the fool? If we're looking at wisdom and walking in wisdom, which is knowledge applied, simply for more things in this life, wisdom is not a guarantee that you're going to have more than a fool. There's a lot of foolish people that have a lot of things, right? So there's got to be a greater motivation for wisdom. The poor man, what does the poor man have? He knows how to walk before the living. This particular poor man doesn't have a lot in material possessions, but he does have wisdom, and he knows how to walk before people. Verse 9 is worth highlighting. There's some verses in Ecclesiastes that are such a blessing. They're life changers. This is definitely a verse to hold on to. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This is also vanity and grasping for wind. If I'm going to a restaurant with family or friends, for me, it's a competition with myself of what is the best thing on the menu. Not the best thing on the menu for you, but the best thing on the menu for me. The restaurant has to have something that I like the best. Like Mod Pizza, I don't know if you guys have been there, just drives me crazy because there's so many options, right? And which one is really going to narrow down to be the best option. So when everybody's food comes out, a lot of times whatever's right in front of me is not nearly as good looking as what is in front of you. And I feel like I've been defeated, that I've lost. I've lost this, this battle with, with myself, right? Instead of just being thankful for the food that is in front of me. So father-like son, my son Wyatt, who's now six when he was little, Inevitably, him and I would have the same dinner and he'd be sitting next to me, but he liked what was on my plate. He would look over at my plate and say, dad, can I have your chicken, right? I'm like, son, you've got the same chicken on your plate. So this is all right, go ahead. You can have some of mine and I'll take all of yours, right? (laughs) So, but that's innate in us, isn't it? We, We look at what somebody else has, and we go, oh, I really want that. And we fail to see what's right in front of us. We fail to see the blessing that God has provided for us. The Bible describes this as this wandering of desire, this wandering of lust, and it leads to emptiness. It leads to grasping for the wind. We're never satisfied. If we can't be satisfied with what God has placed right in front of us, we're not gonna be satisfied with anything that he's gonna provide in the future. We'll continue this endless pursuit of emptiness. How may this play out in our lives? It plays out relationally. It can enter into a marriage, can it? Instead of being thankful for the spouse that God has provided, before you know it, the wandering of desire has come in the back door, and you start to look at someone else and fantasize about them and say, well, I don't think they treat their spouse this way, or I find them to be more attractive than than my spouse. In Solomon, in Proverbs, he writes a lot about being satisfied with your spouse. Put your attention and focus on your spouse and be thankful for what the Lord has placed right in front of you. Sometimes it can happen with friendships. These are the friends that God has provided in our lives. And instead of being thankful for them, we're like, man, I would really like some better friends. I'd really like some different friends. I'd like for people to care for me in a greater way. It can happen with our children, can it, right? One of the things that happens to us as parents is we compare ourselves to other parents, but we also compare our children. And we go, man, I, I just wish my kid was like that. But instead, they're like this, you know? Be thankful that they're like this. This is exactly the way that God wants them to be and has engineered them to be. In singleness, it can be difficult to be content in being single. And to see that all God has placed in front of you and say, I'm gonna be satisfied only if I'm married. No, you're gonna be satisfied fully and completely in Christ and in him. This is also exposed a lot of times in materialism, isn't it? You know, you're satisfied with your house until you go to your friend's house. You look at features of their home, you're like, man, I really wish my home was like this. Or even worse, you watch Fix It Upper and you're like, holy cow. Got that stinking house for $25,000 and put $100,000 into it and it's way nicer than my house. I need to move to Texas. No, you don't need to move to Texas. (laughs) There's a reason the cost of living is cheaper there. So if you're from Texas, Colorado is better. That's Why you guys all vacation here? Let's be honest, right? So, so my email address is ericcardier <laughs> at rockymountcalvary.org, right? Be satisfied. Lord, this is the home. This is the car. This is the vehicle that you have provided for me instead of this wandering of desires. This happens a lot of times with debt, doesn't it? And credit card debt. I can't wait, I've got to have this. My desire is saying I've got to have this right now. So God hasn't provided the money. I I can't afford it. But Visa tells me that I can afford it. American Express tells me that I can afford it. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to get it. The answer to wandering desire is desire that's met in Christ is to take our desire and say, ultimately, this emptiness that I'm longing for can only be fulfilled in relationship with Christ. This is the enemy to being satisfied with goodness. Wandering of desire is the enemy to being satisfied with the goodness of who God is and who he has provided for us. This is the exact opposite of contentment. In Proverbs 27, verse 8, it says, like a bird that wanders from its nest is a man who wanders from his place. What happens when a bird wanders from its place, from its nest? Destruction. What happens when we have wandering of desire and we wander from the place that God has provided? It brings destruction. Church, God's into the business of restoration, isn't he? And you may look at verse nine and be filled with regret this morning and going, man, my lust, my desire, it took me on a ride. I've abandoned my family. I've gotten myself in a ton of debt. I've done this, I've done this. Is there any hope for me? Absolutely. What took the prodigal away from his father? His wandering of desire. I want the money. I want the party life. And here he is sitting in the pig pen because of it and he remembers it's better in my father's house it's better to be a servant in my father's house than to be in this pig pen and he has the courage to return to his father and the father doesn't scold him the father doesn't shame him the father runs to him puts a robe upon him gives him sandals and says we need to have the best barbecue we've ever had because my son has come home And if you find yourself in that place of regret and in the pig's pen, come back to the Father. Turn back to him. And he loves to put your life back together for for his glory in a way that only he can do. In verse 10, Whatever one is, he is named already, for it is known that he is man. And he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Solomon brings us into perspective of the Lord and says, Whatever you are... The Lord has named you already. He knows you. He has foreknowledge of you. And then we see that we can't contend with God because he's mightier than us. Who are we to to try to contend with him? Who are we to try to be his counselor even though sometimes we try? This is our place before God. In verse 11 it says, Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? (laughs) Solomon's saying, look, I'm just getting started here. I've spent six chapters looking at emptiness and vanity, but there's so many things that increase vanity. So how can our lives be better? Remember, this is leading to the conclusion of fear God, be in the awe of God. Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Outside of that, it is absolute vanity. As we're studying this book, guys, read ahead in chapter seven, because it's gonna shift. Solomon goes from looking at hedonism, this pursuit of pleasure, to looking at wisdom and morality. And in chapter 7 all the way to chapter 12, he describes wisdom and morality. And wisdom, as good as it is, apart from a relationship with Christ, also leads to emptiness and vanity in our lives. Verse 12: For who knows what is good for man in life? Isn't that so true? How do we know what is good? for us in this life. A lot of times we think we know what's good and it involves the path of least resistance. It involves the least amount of difficulty. But God is the one that truly knows what's good for our lives. Maybe one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible is Romans 8, 28. It's a great promise. What does it say? For all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But good from whose perspective? Is it good from my perspective or is it good from God's perspective? It's good from God's perspective to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. So it's knowing that God is good and he does good. And even though it may not feel good to me, this doesn't feel good to me. I know that God is working a plan together that glorifies himself. Continuing in verse 12, all the days of his life, which he passes like a shadow. All the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Apart from Christ, our life is vain and empty and it does pass very quickly. I can't believe that we're headed into this last quarter of the year. Where did summer go? It's gone. Before you know it, we're going to be here celebrating Christmas on our Christmas Eve services. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? Do we know... What happens to us after we die? Absolutely. As we look at the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus made it very clear as we trust him, as we believe in him, that we're saved, that we have everlasting life. Revelation 21 verse four says this, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. When we get to heaven, Jesus is going to wipe away our tears. Who wipes away your tears? Who has wiped away your tears? Someone that's very close to you. Many times it's a parent. We all have memories of our our parents wiping away our tears. Sometimes our spouses. Sometimes our own kids. That's always moving, isn't it? When something's going on and tears start to well up in your eyes and it tends to be young ch- kids that just come right next to you and begin to wipe those tears and let you know dad mom it- it's going to be okay let's say after church today you need to get some groceries you're at the grocery only walmart or king supers and for some reason you're broken you're going through a hard time and you begin to cry you begin to lose it in the in the king supers and here comes a stranger And they start taking off of your glasses and wiping away your tears. What would you do? Freak, get away from me. (laughs) Right? I don't know you. What makes you think you can touch my face? (laughs) Right? That would totally freak us out if somebody did that to us. So the fact that Jesus is going to wipe our tears, it shows how personal the relationship is. How much he loves us. And we're not going to go, oh, this feels strange. We're going to go, oh, this feels wonderful. And they'll be wiped away, and there'll be no more. No more tears in heaven. No more pain. No more health struggles. No more sorrow. No more heartache. Forever with the Lord. What a glorious promise that God has given. Those that don't receive Christ as their Savior, those that reject Christ as their Savior, Jesus also told us there's, everlasting judgment. It's so important to turn your heart and life to Christ, to believe the gospel. You might be saying, well, what's the gospel? The gospel's this, that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, that he's God, that he died for you. He rose again to turn from sin and to cry out to Jesus, Jesus, save me. Just a moment, we're gonna celebrate communion together and there's gonna be those available to pray with you, pastors, ministry team, right here on the sides where it's a little quieter and come up and let someone know I'm ready to believe. I'm ready to trust Christ and what he's done for me and turn from my sin and to be able to receive salvation. So here's three questions for us that have to do with being satisfied with goodness before we take communion. The first is, have I taken my health for granted? Have I taken my health for granted? I'm pretty sure if we lose our health, we would tend to value it. We go, wow, I really had good health all of, all of those years. So be thankful for it and enjoy it. What keeps me from being satisfied with goodness? What is it? What is it in my heart? What is it in my life that keeps me from being satisfied with goodness? And then, in what areas am I starting to wander? Be honest. Be honest. Are you starting to wander in your marriage? Are you starting to think about what it would be like with, with someone else? Are you starting to wander in your job? It's one thing for God to open up a new opportunity, and it's another thing to just have wanderlust. The world unbelievers use this term as wanderlust as something that's good, that it's an attribute that we should have, that not everybody who wanders is lost. Well, most of the time they are right? And it's great to have free time and hike and seek out adventure. But God doesn't want us in this place where our soul is wandering. Agreed? He wants our soul to be a place where it's fixed. I'm fixed upon Christ. I'm fixed upon what he's he's called me to do. So this is a great section of scripture for us to take communion today. To look back at the cross and what Christ has done for us. To remember the bread is his broken body. The cup represents his shed blood. And to really enter into the goodness of the Lord. His grace and his faithfulness in our lives. To allow him to examine our hearts. And to take that wandering and to replace it with contentment. So let's stand together and let's pray and prepare our hearts for communion. Father, you know us. You know our shortcomings. You see our wandering hearts. We thank you that you do love us. We thank you that we can always come back to you, and we need your grace afresh in our lives. And may you do a fresh work in our hearts as we take communion this morning. May you remind us of your sacrifice. And would you take areas of our lives where we're wandering and replace it with contentment. For each of us, may you truly minister to our hearts and we love you in Jesus' name, amen.